what do you put first above God today? Not, not later, but today. Your calendar, your pocketbook, your affections are very helpful indicators. True disciples don't delay. They have uncompromising, immediate, absolute obedience. Grace and peace, everyone. Good to be with you all. So we are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 20. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. Reading here from the New King James. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Let's pray. Father, as we study this passage here on discipleship, I pray that you would help us to to grasp the, the deep truth that is the kernel of what Jesus is saying here about what, what he is looking for in, in would-be disciples. Father, help us not to be confused or deceived about the demands of discipleship. I pray that you would help all of us to just really be fully present, to be reading your word here with great clarity, and to be open to the challenges that I I know are resident within these words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have just finished three stories, three little stories about healing that we have gone through week by week. Uh, The first story was the story of the healing of a leper. And then there was the, the story of the healing of the centurion servant, and then finally was Peter's mother-in-law. And we saw how that crossed barriers of purity, of, of Jew-Gentile, and then gender lines that Jesus breaks in all three episodes. We spent a lot of time going through those. I'm not really going to recap that. I hope you can go back and listen to those messages if you missed them. I, I did mention before that Jesus as healer is an underemphasized dimension in his person. In many churches, and probably in most of the ones that many people in this room grew up in, it is something that that is can can go out of balance. We can lift up Jesus as teacher or Jesus as Lord, and forget Jesus as healer. And in fact, we had a a, a quite remarkable healing in this room three weeks ago, which I was I was very happy to to witness. And I believe we need to go deeper into that vocation of healing. Uh, much deeper. But one of the great challenges, it's a major, major challenge, it's easier said than done, is 
whenever we look at Jesus is to hold together all of his different qualities together. So whether it's healer, shepherd, Lord, savior, the, the temptation is always going to be to camp out on just a subset of Jesus's dimensions. And one of the main reasons why I'm, I'm so committed to expository teaching, where you just go through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is that it forces us to reckon with Jesus in his fullness. If you're just kind of preaching topically, you can just land on what, you're, what you want to see, and you can gravitate towards topics that are of your own personal interest. And what is so interesting, and I think we're going to see this today, is that just when you get comfortable with Jesus... He makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> you come to a place where you think like, oh, I thought I, thought I had this, this figured out. Uh, and I, I think we're, we're going to be hopefully, Lord willing, challenged quite a bit today as we study this. Just when we're comfortable, we get knocked off of our hobby horse and we are forced to reckon with the one who rides on a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. So... As I mentioned, there have been churches that camp out on Jesus' as healer. I, I grew up in charismatic churches. There was a lot of emphasis on physical healing in those places. A lot of mainline churches will camp out on Jesus more as like psychological healer, kind of a uh, counselor type person. And there's, there's validity to those, those dimensions, but often they miss the Jesus that we read about here in this passage, which is the Jesus who makes lofty demands of discipleship. So after these three stories of healings, one of the things that Matthew does as he arranges this portrayal of Jesus is he gives us a very stark, very demanding portrayal of the demands of discipleship. The church's ministry certainly includes healing, but it's not healing alone. And it is here in this chapter that we see Jesus both as tender healer as well as demanding Lord. Jesus does not merely give. He makes gritty demands. So let's walk through this, this chapter, or this section rather, these five verses, verse by verse. Okay, so in verse 18 of chapter 8, it says, When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Okay, so context, again, it's obvious, but he's just been healing, right? We saw the, the healings, spent a lot of time on that. And it's usually the case, most often, that after Jesus does healings and miracles, you get a big crowd around him, right? So this happens here. So he's looking around, he's like, whoa, there's, there's a lot of people here, a lot of crowds. And interestingly, this is also very common, when Jesus sees a large crowd of people around him, his impulse is actually to withdraw with his disciples to a secluded place or to a place where they can regroup and be refreshed. And it's, it's as if, okay, so I picture the scene. I mean, picture this amazing scene of just all these people who are, who are being healed by Jesus. And he looks around and his heart, I'm sure, is just broken by all of the, the physical needs, all the men and women and children with all of these, these problems. But then he realizes the greatest need that the world has isn't for more healings, but it's for disciples. And what he does is he, he pulls back and says, okay, I, I need to invest in my people and my disciples. 
he realizes that the hope of the world is not merely in bodily healing. I've said to you before that this section in particular, right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus embodies the Sermon on the Mount. We called it the Sermon on the Moves, a title from someone else. And here, what what Jesus is, is doing is he's manifesting through his actions what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, told his disciples, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. And he wants to cultivate disciples for the highest end of saving the world. So that's my first point. Jesus understands that genuine discipleship is the world's greatest need. Jesus understands that genuine discipleship is the world's greatest need. Okay, so again, for context from last time, he's at Capernaum, which is a, a city that's on the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. And he wants to get on a boat and go across and go to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so just then, verse 19, a certain scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, a certain scribe comes up to him right before they're going to go. So who are the scribes? I think most of us know. Scribes were part of the educated class of first century Israel. And they were entrusted not just with copying, of course, the word scribe sounds like copying, which is true, but they were also vested with, with teaching responsibilities. They had to teach people and explain what all the, the words meant of the law. So they were part of the religiously powerful class. There's been a word that's been proposed, that, which I think is a, a, a brilliant equivalent for today's world. The, world. the word that has been proposed is the word scholar. And I think that's, that's probably as close as we can get in English to it, because when we hear the word scribe, we don't use that word today. So a scholar, a religious scholar comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, I want to follow you wherever you go. Now, the first point to observe here is he calls Jesus teacher, didaskale. And you might think, oh, that's a good thing, calling Jesus teacher. But as it turns out in Matthew, this this title and the vocative that's used about Jesus is used five times and all five of the times, it, five of the times it's used by people who are not Jesus' disciple or those who won't become Jesus' disciples. Okay. All five of the times I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the references. I'm, we're not going to look at them, but I encourage you to, to write them down and, and look at them up on your own time. So they're chapter eight, verse 19, what we just read chapter 12, verse 38, chapter 19, verse 16, chapter 22, verse 16, and then chapter 2, verse 36. It's worth spending time to look at those. The rich young ruler is an example. That's how he approaches Jesus. He says, good teacher. So this this title teacher is used um, everywhere in Matthew by people who aren't disciples or who won't become disciples. So I encourage you to look at those there. So we get a little bit of a hint right out, right out of the gate that, that this person who's approaching Jesus as teacher may not be an authentic disciple. There's something amiss, even with his, his address towards Jesus. So I think it kind of makes sense that he, as this scholar, is attracted to Jesus as teacher because, hey, if you're a scholar, right? I mean, what better, what better source of amazing teaching to go to than Jesus, right? So it, it makes sense that he would be attracted to him as, as teacher as opposed to Lord or healer or something like that. So my second point is that those who love to learn 
are especially vulnerable to a false discipleship. Ouch. Okay. Those who love to learn are especially vulnerable to a false discipleship. Paul speaks about people in 2 Timothy who are always learning and never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. There are a lot of people out there who love to learn. Loving to learn is not, uh, it's not a bad thing, but they love to learn. They love biblical languages. They love reading. They love Bible study. They love stimulating sermons and talks. But there is surprisingly little sacrifice, little giving, little evangelism, little hospitality, little prayer, little service to the poor. How is it with you? If, if you think about yourself in this, on, on that spectrum, um, hopefully we would bring both together, but it's usually people, um, many people, I, I will say in, in the U.S., particularly in, in circles that many of us travel in here, are going to tilt pretty heavily to that side of like, yeah, give me more, give me more. I want more sermons and more books and, hey, I want to read and study and this and that. But then there's not this this level of sacrifice to match. You look at their lives and you think like, wow, pretty pathetic evangelism, pathetic giving, very, very little sacrifice on behalf of the church, little prayer, little service to the poor. So how is it with you? That's a challenge I want you to meditate on. So this scribe who comes to Jesus says, teacher, he says, I will follow you wherever you go. It's unclear what he means by that. And it's unclear the duration of that. I think it's probably there's an Arab writer named Ibn Said, Arab Christian writer who remarks on this passage. And he says, the disciple quote, does not understand that follow means Gethsemane and Golgotha and the tomb. I think he probably was caught up in the fever of like all these healings and like, Whoa, here's this like awesome teacher healer who can do all these deeds. And like, I want to follow this guy, but he hasn't really counted the cost. And he makes a, we might call it a premature confession, this premature declaration, like, yeah, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm ready to go. And Jesus like checks that. And he says, well, do you actually understand here what, what this entails? I found a really great sermon from the fifth century, from a very obscure person named Maximus of Turin. And he, he goes down a line where he, he, he points out that there's some similarities here of premature confessions with the, the pre-Pentecost Peter and this man here. So I'll read you from this sermon. He says, this is a more foolish presumption than a confession of faith. Later, the Lord would say to the apostle Peter, when he thought that he would follow the savior in every circumstance, remember that Peter was like, yeah, I'm going to die with you. I'm going to go with you wherever, where uh, where I'm going. You're not able to follow me now. That's what Jesus said. And when Peter obstinately insisted and said that death would not separate him from Jesus, he heard that he would deny the Lord three times in this. He was censured as it were for his pride. Thus, the one who promised while confessing Christ that he would not be separated from him by death is cut off from fellowship with him by a little maidservant's question. Wow. Powerful line. I thought when I read that, I thought that's brilliant. He says, this man who says like, I'm going to go, I'm going to follow you wherever. Um, And what was he cut off from fellowship with by a little maidservant's question? 
It's very easy to laugh off Peter, isn't it? It's very easy to think like, oh, that, that bumbling Peter, like I wouldn't have made that mistake. But what has caused you, what has caused us to be cut off from fellowship? A class, homework, being busy, some appointment, family duties, staying up late and watching something foolish online. There's a lot of things, small things that can erode at one at the fellowship that we're supposed to have with, with Jesus. Okay, so Jesus now comes to this, this man, or I should say this, Jesus responds to this man and says in verse 20, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, we need to spend a little bit of time on this title, the Son of Man. I know most of you have, I think, a decent understanding of it, but probably not with the depth that, that we should here. So I want to spend 10 minutes, 5-10 minutes on this. Dozens and dozens and dozens of books have been written on just this title, Son of Man. It is a whole field unto itself. And it can be extremely confusing and, yeah, very uh, uh, extremely um, distressing how, how complicated some people have made this. So I want to clarify this for you. In fact, this is the very first time in the whole New Testament that this is used, this title is used. The very first time is right here in chapter 8. So obviously it's the first time in Matthew and thus in the whole New Testament. So I want us to look here at a couple of examples of this, just so you can see it with your own eyes and you can really appreciate this. So hold your finger in Matthew chapter 8 and flip to Psalm 8. So Psalm 8 is a place where we see this term son of man. So huios to anthropu for those who, who are thinking of the Greek there. So in Psalm chapter eight, verse four, it's a pretty familiar Psalm to, I think most of us, it's a beautiful Psalm. It says in verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him or that you care for him. Okay. So you can see here the parallel construction as, as is usually the case in Hebrew, lines have a parallel setup where terms roughly correspond with one another. And you can see here that son of man is the parallel of what? Man. Yeah, man. So very good. So, so it's, it's sort of here just used as a generic term for like humanity or people or person, something like that. And in fact, this is a very common Hebrew way of speaking that you'll, you'll see a lot sons of peace, sons of light, sons of righteousness, something like that. And so you'll have something in the genitive after sons of, and whatever is after that, whether it's peace or righteousness or whatever it, it, what you're basically saying is sons of is, is an essential is essentially saying it's the, uh, you have the qualities inherent in, in the, of that. So if you're a son of peace, then you're a, a very peaceful person. Uh, it's just an idiom that we don't use in English here. Uh, if you're a, a son of the wise, that means you're a wise person. Okay. And so, so here, son of man means some, something like someone who's essentially human. It's just simple as that. We don't have to make it any more complex. Okay, so that's that's one way that it's used is just human uh, person, 
mankind, something like that. Okay, the next place where I want you to look is in the book of Ezekiel. So I actually did a search using a Bible program, and I searched for huios anthropu. Uh, here it's usually used more in the vocative. In the book of Ezekiel, I was blown away. It's used 94 times. It's amazing. So God, when he speaks to Ezekiel, often uses the title Son of Man. Let's just look at a couple of these. It's uh, just to give you, just to convince you that they're, they're there, uh, but they're everywhere uh, once, you, once you look for this. So in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1, he said to me, Son of Man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. It's the same thing in the Septuagint. It's said, Huios, it's Huios, it's vocative there. Yeah, Anthropu, son of man. And then look at, just look for, just for one other instance, look at Ezekiel 3, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So it's used 94 times when God speaks to Ezekiel and he calls him son of man. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. Some translations, not, not the major ones, but some translations, because it's often used as a way to describe Ezekiel's, uh, Ezekiel as a human in contrast to God as the creator, they'll translate it as like, oh, mortal one or something like that to, to make this contrast a little more evident between God up here and we humans below. Okay, so that's, those, are, those are two instances. Now, the most important reference here, and I know many of you are thinking of this, is in Daniel 7. Um, Daniel 7 is, if you say, if I were to say, pick one reference from the Old Testament where Son of Man is important, this is the one you should pick. I'm going to read to you here actually from the ESV, because the ESV actually renders it more accurately than the New King James does. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, it says, uh, so this is Daniel, he's, he's having this night vision. So he says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom. One that shall not be destroyed. Okay. So I chose the the ESV here because there is no definite article in the original. So it's, there came one like a son of man. So it's not like the son of man. So you read this and you could just say like, there came one like a human, like a person, right? Like if you, if you were to read it, there's not an obvious title here. However, this is a very special individual because what is given to this person, dominion, glory, a kingdom, all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. Wow. So whoever this character is that approaches the ancient of days is, is a person who sounds divine. He sounds almost superhuman because he's given all this authority and dominion there. So what's fascinating here. So those are the representative ones I wanted us to look at here. So Psalm eight, what is man that we should, that you would, you would, um, uh, that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you should care for him. We have those kinds of instances, which is human. We have God speaking to Ezekiel and just a, a sense of 
you human, you mortal one. And then you have this really interesting one in Daniel 7 where this person, like a son of man, like a, a human, comes and is given this dominion and authority. So out of that matrix, this becomes Jesus' favorite title for himself. Amazing. And what's the reason why so many people have, have puzzled over this is that in Judaism at the time, people have searched high and low. People were not using the title Son of Man for Messianic anything. It was, they were using things like Son of David or Christos, Christ. Uh, they were using lofty titles like that. But Son of Man, what is that? Like, what, why does Jesus choose this as his number one favorite title for himself? As I said, Son of David is, is a title that definitely people were using, but I, I'm going to give you some, some insights as to why I think Jesus was using this title for himself. Number one, Son of David is a very nationalistic title, right? Son of God clearly emphasizes his relationship to God. Lord emphasizes his relationship over believers. But Son of Man or Son of Humanity, it's anthropos here, it's not andros, so it's really person here. Um, it emphasizes his relation to humanity as a, as a kind of second Adam. As like, and he put, now Jesus puts a the in front of it. He puts the article O or Ho in front of it. So he takes what was in Daniel as just this person coming like a Son of Man, and now he identifies himself as the Son of Man. So Ho Huyos to Anthropu. So I'm going to read to you from a couple of, of authors who I think get it right and accurately capture the sense of this. So why did Jesus, this is from an author named uh, Leon Morris, who says, why did Jesus use the term? I have suggested elsewhere that firstly, it was because it was a rare term and one without nationalistic associations. It would lead to no political complications. Secondly, because it had overtones of divinity. Thirdly, because of its societary implications. The Son of Man implies the redeemed people of God. Fourthly, because it had undertones of humanity. He took upon himself our weakness. Another author, Grant Osborne. The earthly and suffering Son of Man are a cipher in which Jesus, in certain situations, expresses both his authority and his humility and tribulation, which ultimately lead him to suffering and death including the coming son of man who appears as a mysterious heavenly figure. And then finally, D.A. Carson, who says, what did Jesus mean by this expression? The simplest answer is that he used the term precisely because it was ambiguous. I love that. It could conceal as well as reveal. Jesus combined the two, Danielic Messiah and frail mortal, precisely because his own understanding of Messiahship was laced with both themes. In Jesus' ministry, Son of Man both reveals and conceals. Thus, he chose the ideal expression for progressively and to some extent retrospectively revealing the nature of his person and work. Isn't that awesome? I just love those, those descriptions there. So there you have, I think, a very uh, succinct and helpful way to understand the expression Son of Man. Now, I've noticed when you, when you read through the references where Jesus uses Son of Man about himself— it's often linked to suffering. It's often linked to his ministry of suffering. So we won't turn to this one, but in Matthew 17, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. So if you look consistently, you'll see that it seems like when Jesus is contemplating his, his passion, his suffering on the cross, he tends to use that title son of man. 
It's often used as well in passages that are closely linked to discipleship. Okay, so my third point, after building all that up, was to, is to say that the title Son of Man points to Jesus and his disciples' suffering and future exaltation. The title Son of Man points to Jesus and his disciples' suffering and future exaltation. Okay, so now that we've done that, now we can look at the verse. Verse 20, it says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, so what is Jesus telling the scholar? So, so put yourself in this portray in, in the scene. Here you have a powerful person, uh, the scholar who comes to Jesus, and Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm gonna, I want to, I want to go with you wherever you go. And wouldn't have been the most natural thing for Jesus to say, "Come on, I'm going to take care of you," right? Like, what, like humanly speaking, like wouldn't that like be the, the normal thing to say? Like we anticipate Jesus saying, "Like, that's great. Welcome." You're going to be one of my disciples. I'm going to take care of you. But instead, what does Jesus do? Ah, Jesus like completely frustrates all expectations. And he says, my life is a hard life. Uh, This is not a life for, for you to consider in a lighthearted manner. Now I've mentioned to you that this passage here, chapter eight and chapter nine are embodying the Sermon on the Mount. Which teaching here is he embodying from the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think it's very clear. He's embodying chapter six, where Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus is saying like, Come into my life and you're going to have to enter into a life of trust, a life not of one of security. So this is so interesting and so powerful because this scholar who's approaching Jesus is, is, is getting a fairly stern, some, some might say harsh response, right? If you're like, Hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. Uh, The reason why it's, it's also surprising is that, in the rabbinical school of thought that he would have been, the scholar would have been used to, he would have expected for to enter into some kind of a school or synagogue or some kind of security of an institution. When you when you study how Second, Te- Second Temple Judaism functioned, there were these clear schools and these these leaders of these schools. And by entering into these schools, you kind of come under their umbrella, you come under their protection, you come under all of the institutional blessing that goes with it. But here, what Jesus is saying is, is like saying, no, you come with, follow me, and you're going to be staying with me in random places. I, I lodge wherever and wherever, uh, wherever I can with, with um, friends and and colleagues and, and, and relatives there. I'm going to read you a quote here from one individual who captures this well. He says, this notably stern reply checks this enthusiastic recruit because Jesus' form of discipleship is a different sort from what the scribe has experienced in his prior training. Rabbis enjoyed a relatively high status within Judaism, but Jesus has no school or synagogue or prestigious place of honor among the religious establishment. He, Jesus, stays at the home of friends, relatives, and disciples through most of his ministry. 
So the expression, no place to lay his head, does not indicate a homeless, cynic-type philosopher, but rather that his ministry will not result in an institutional establishment with comfortable benefits. And this will also be the lot of those who follow him. There's a, a pretty well-known writer, Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer, who says it very simply. He says, follow Jesus and you will be devoid of all middle-class security. I like that. You will be devoid of all middle-class security. And then Stanley Hauerwas also says it simply and elegantly. He says, you cannot stay home and follow Jesus. Jesus says, you're going to be living a life of strain and difficulty. So my fourth point summarizes that, which in saying authentic discipleship is a life of insecurity. Authentic discipleship is a life of insecurity. All the questions this man would have had when he comes to Jesus. How am I going to support myself? What am I going to eat? Who are going to be my, my, my social tribe? What's geographically, where am I going to be? All that gets thrown up when you decide to follow Jesus. Looking for, for what's comfortable, what's familiar, what's safe has never been the way of Jesus's disciples. So again, I, I challenge all of us here in the room to ask, how are we doing here with this call to discipleship that Jesus is laying out? Are we following in his paths as strangers and aliens, or are we defaulting into being homebodies and into what is comfortable? Okay, now we go to the last two verses. Verse 21 says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There's a huge debate. I don't think it's solvable. Is the father dying? Is he already dead? How long has he been dead? Like, who knows? I read a bunch of uh, books to try to sort that out. And my conclusion is that nobody knows. Uh, and frankly, I don't think it matters at all because that's not the point here. Like if we needed to know, we would have been told that. But again, let's be honest. This seems pretty harsh, right? I mean, like this, this should be something where, hey, honoring your father and mother, that's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. It was really, really interesting. One thing I did uncover is how strongly Judaism was teaching that you needed to take care of, especially funeral rites of your parents. So there's, there's one corpus of Judaism called the Mishnah. I'll read you a quote from that that says, He who's dead, like whose family lies dead, lies unburied before him, is exempt from re- reciting the Shema, that's the Deuteronomy 6, from saying the Tefillah as prayers, and from wearing phylacteries. So basically saying, like, if you have family members who aren't yet properly buried, you don't have to pray, you don't have to recite the Shema, you don't have to wear the phylacteries, those are those little boxes with the, the scriptures inside of them. And the Talmud, which is a little bit later of a document in Judaism, said, He who is confronted by a dead relative is free from reciting the Shema, again, from the 18 benedictions, and from all the commandments stated in the Torah. <laughs> I was blown away. That's a quote. He who is confronted by a dead relative is free from reciting the Shema, from the 18 benedictions, and from all the commandments stated in the Torah. So, whoa. So, like, in Judaism, you needed to attend to your parents' funeral rites and burial and all that to neglect your family like this would have been just fanatical, like just completely off base. David Brousseau gives a good analogy though, to help us understand this. Cause a lot of us, I think our, 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 our first response is like, Oh Jesus, why do you have to be so harsh? But Brousseau gives a, 
uh, I think a helpful analogy here. He says, imagine that a Roman emperor was traveling through Galilee and he finds some peasant and he tells this peasant, okay, peasant, I have chosen you and I want you to come with me to Rome and you are going to become part of my family with all of the, the lavish benefits that come from that. And the peasant told this Roman empire, emperor, oh, you know, just I'll catch up with you later. I'll, I'll, I got to deal with some stuff. You think like, are you nuts? Like you are being offered the opportunity of a lifetime here to be drawn into the home of this emperor. And now Jack came up with is if somebody said to you, there's an organ transplant available for you today that is going to save your life. Uh, you have a kidney you've been waiting for. You're not going to say, oh, I'll just, I need to do this, this, and this. You would say, this is life. This is my opportunity to get not just temporal benefits, but eternal life. And I think what happens is we, we don't equate Jesus's call to things of this magnitude. We tend to think like, oh yeah, this can wait, right? Like, what's the big deal? In addition, there's a lot of wisdom in what Jesus is teaching this man here. And I'll read you here from, from a sermon from John Chrysostom, who identifies something that I think is a, a really important point. He says, Herein too, we should admire the instructiveness of his teaching, that he nailed him fast to his word, and with this freed him from those endless evils, such as lamentations and mournings and the things that follow thereafter. For after the burial, he must of necessity proceed to inquire about the will, then about the distribution of the inheritance and all the other things that follow thereupon. And thus waves after waves coming in succession upon him would bear him very far away from the harbor of truth. Beautiful. So he's basically saying like, if this man goes and has to deal with this, well, what's going to happen? He's going to get caught up in details of the will. Okay. Well now who's going to get what? I got to figure all that out. Now I got to distribute it. Okay. Now it's distributed. I got to attend to this and then this and this. And, and Chrysostom says after this waves, after waves coming in succession upon him would bear him away very far from the harbor of truth. So true. Isn't it? Like, haven't we all experienced times where you just like, Oh yeah, I just got to take care of this. And then like, and this, then this, then this, then this, then this happens. There is a clue here to this, to this disciple's main mistake. And the mistake is, I hope you saw it. And if you didn't see it, now look at Matthew chapter eight again with me and look at this word that should jump out at you. In verse 21, this disciple says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So that word first proton is the word is I think the main mistake that disciple commits. He puts first what should not have been placed first. He could have said, Hey, I'm going to follow you Jesus. And then later on I'll go figure out how to deal with this. He doesn't do that. He says, first, I need to go deal with burying my father. He could not say no to these social and familial pulls. So my, my fifth and final point is first, the word first, so first in quotes, and no in quotes, are the two most important words of daily discipleship. First and no are the two most important words of daily discipleship. So what is first for you in terms of time, in terms of priorities? Simple question. Even how do you begin your day? I've been thinking a lot about the Lord's Prayer recently. And, of course, there's that line in there. 
give us this day our super substantial bread. Epiusion is the, the Greek word there. Daily is not a great translation there. So give us this day our, if you use the, the King James daily bread or super substantial bread. You don't pray that at the end of the day, right? You're supposed to pray that at the start of the day. It, it doesn't even make sense to think about that at the end of the day. So implied in the Lord's Prayer, which is, of course, our model prayer that Jesus tells us, is, is implying that we begin our day in prayer. Is time with God first. What is truly first when you plan your calendar? Many of us use different calendar software, Google Calendar or Outlook or paper planners. What do you put first on that calendar? Is it your time with God and time with church? What is first when you plan your giving? Is it God and his kingdom? Or is your attitude, let me first and then fill in the blank? Let me first finish college. Let me first get this homework and exam done. Let me first do this before the prayer meeting. Let me first get through talking to myself, get through this talk I have to give. Let me first get through this season of life or this career. What do you put first above God today? Not, not later, but today. Your calendar, your pocketbook, your affections are very helpful indicators. I'll read to you a quote here from... Charles Finney, who has a, a brilliant insight into, into what, me, what makes for a successful Christian. This is from a volume of a sermon called True Christianity, page 186. He says, so far, and, and this is the, the individual who by far has had the greatest success in evangelism in the history of America. Uh, those of you who've taken the evangelism class know I've read him and we've talked about him there, but if you haven't, an amazing person. So I'll read you a quote here. So far as I have had, as so far as I have had opportunity to observe those persons with whom conversion was most sudden have commonly turned out to be the best Christians. I know the opposite of this has often been held, but I am satisfied. There is no reason for it. Although many people even now regarded as suspicious. If a person has been converted very suddenly, but the Bible gives no reason for the supposition. There is not a case of protracted conviction recorded in the whole Bible. All the conversions recorded there are sudden conversions. And I am persuaded there would never be so many tedious convictions that often end in nothing after all. If it were not for those theological perversions that have filled the world with cannot ism. He makes up a word there. Cannot ism. In Bible days, sinners were told to repent, and they did it then. Cannotism has not, cannotism had not been introduced in that day. It is this speculation about the inability of sinners to obey God that lays the foundation for all the protracted anguish and distress and perhaps ruin into which so many are led. Where a sinner is brought to see what he has to do, and he takes a stand and at once and does it, or sorry, and he takes a stand at once and does it, you generally find that such a person proves a decisive character. You will not find him one of those that you will always have to warp up to do duty like a ship against wind and tide. Look at those professing Christians who always have to be dragged forward in duty, and you will generally find that they did not have very clear and consistent instructions when they were converted. Most likely, too, they will be very much afraid of these sudden conversions. I, I will say time and time again, one of the most consistent things that I've seen is this cannot-ism. 
it's much stronger today than it was back in the 1800s. And people delay and delay and delay and delay and delay things that they should take them a day to do and work through. And what is, what is this man's mistake is delay. I got to sort this out. I got my, my stuff to attend to. I got my, my family business to attend to here. True disciples don't delay. They have uncompromising, immediate, absolute obedience. Jesus makes it even more strong when he says, let the dead bury their dead. What is he talking about here? I think it's probably a double meaning. By dead, he means those who are preoccupied with the earthly, being preoccupied with sickness and death and the things of this world, and ultimately those who are spiritually dead. It's strong language because basically what Jesus is saying is that all those outside Jesus' community of faith, he calls them dead. I'm going to close with with a final quote here and a challenge. I know this is a a very, for me, this is a very provocative passage that I found very convicting. I'll read you from a person named Dale Bruner who says, Notice Matthew's exact language about this last individual. Okay, I hope you all caught it. Did you see what he was called? This man in verse 21 is called another of his disciples, Matthetes. So this is a a disciple, and that that word might bother you. But notice Matthew's exact language. This man is already a disciple, which teaches us that discipleship is regularly renegotiated, renewed, or canceled. By again challenging a man who is already a disciple to follow me, we learn that Jesus constantly recalls us to the totality that is discipleship. So I'd like that for us to consider this very well. Most of us in the room would would call ourselves disciples. Jesus calls again to today to discipleship's demands. Will it be renewed or will it be canceled? I realize some people may not ever have experienced this. Some have. But if I have said anything here that has challenged you or convicted you, I want to, to challenge you to step out into an immediate, uncompromising obedience to our Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this passage. And I I think of how Jesus has now for the third time in Matthew taught us what it is to, to, to consider well the claims of following Jesus in Matthew seven, that, that fearful scene of the last days when many people wrongly think that they're going to enter into eternal life. And and earlier on, he talked about how the the sons of the kingdom will be people who thought that they were going to be entering in will be cast out into outer darkness. And here these, these two would be disciples who, who were to some degree disciples uh, are, are challenged and shown to have a false discipleship. That is one that, failed to put you first, that failed to say no to the things of this world, family commitments, comfort, uh, security, all those things. I pray that we would afresh look at our own lives and hear Jesus' call to the totality of what is discipleship. pray all these things in Jesus' name.